thank you everyone. We're here to do another casework stream and super excited to be joined today by Brent Wisner. Um, I will provide an introduction on Brent in a moment. And we're also joined by Allison Forrest, who is one of our directors of case operations here at Caseworks. Um, I'm not really sure, Brent, if you need much of an introduction, but I, for anyone that um, hasn't been around or getting into the legal industry, I'll certainly share a little bit. Brent is an attorney and expert in the mass tort litigation. He's one of Baum Headland's lead trial attorneys. And if you haven't heard, um, he's the youngest attorney to ever obtain a multi-billion dollar verdict. Um, so Brent, you know, one of the first things that I'm interested to learn a little bit more is if you'll share kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, how you were introduced to Baum Headland and kind of the driving force behind getting into mass tort um, litigation. Well, it's kind of funny. I, I, I grew up in LA. Um, and I uh, went to, you know, UCLA, then I went to law school at Georgetown and got a master's degree at the same time. And I was being groomed to be a defense lawyer. Um, and I actually had a moment of like, what am I doing? I don't want to be a defense lawyer. This is not what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and so I last minute tried to figure out something else to do. I ended up clerking for a federal judge in Hawaii for a couple of years. And then my dad said, hey, I used to hang out with this guy in the 70s. And by hang out, I mean hang out with a guy in the 70s. Uh, they went to Woodstock together um, <laughs> and said, you should talk to this guy, Michael Baum, and see what he's doing. And I was like, dirty plaintiff's lawyers? No way. I have no interest in working with them. But I'll talk to Michael Baum. Sure. I them, realized he was one of the coolest and most wonderful human beings I've ever met. And I decided I wanted to work for him. And that's basically been my history so far. You know, we've. We've been kicking ass over at uh, Bob Headland since. Yeah. And, and when was that? When did you join the firm, did you say? Back in 2012. Oh, okay. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So a total 180, right? That that's so funny. The introduction of Bob and then and then getting over. That's great. Well, <clears throat> Brent, so you're serving on the Zantac Leadership Council now. Uh, kind of to get things rolling, can you give us just kind of a brief overview of you know what is the Zantac docket and, and how did this case get started? Sure. So to clarify, I, I'm no longer on the MDL leadership. I, I resigned from that uh, last year, but I am running the, the California uh, proceeding. Had to pick one, so I picked the California one. Yeah. Um, but basically, Zantac is a case involving a product called granitidine. Um, outside of the body and in the body, it breaks down into a substance called NDMA. NDMA is a potent human carcinogen. So we have retained or have been retained by thousands of people who have various types of cancer who are alleging that their consumption of renidine caused it. Um, very similar to what we did in Roundup, you know, use of Roundup caused lymphoma. Here, we have a much more popular drug. We have a longer, heavy use by a lot of people and we have a lot of different cancers. So it's a little more complex than Roundup, but it's uh, the same sort of concept behind it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. And, and since the since NDMA was is not directly added to the product, how do plaintiffs still have a case then? Well, it's interesting. It's because of the way the ranitidine molecule exists. It's a very unstable molecule. On one side, you have the N mm -hmm. of the molecule. On the other side, you have the DMA. And um, when you get exposed to heat, to time, to humidity to the various biological processes in the stomach and through the enzy enzymatic reactions throughout the body, it shears apart and reconstitutes as NDMA. So what we're seeing is that people who consume it, it develops NDMA in the body, but 
in addition to that, it also is turning into NDMA in the pill bottle itself, right? So there's a couple of different ways it turns into NDMA, but it's, you know, NDMA is a well-known and potent human carcinogen. So it's, you know, it's not like that's a bigly controversial issue. I think what we're fighting is where and how much is formed in different parts of the, the moment it gets manufactured to the moment it gets into the body. Yeah. And also it's kind of from when it's transferred, right? When it, when it's kind of contained and it's not kind of in a refrigerator, it's just on the shelves. So it kind of starts there with production, but then like you said, develops even further in the body when it's ingested. That's right. right. And for what it's worth, the defendants for decades have had this problem, quote unquote problem, where for some reason the ritidine and transport storage was turning yellow. Right. And they, you know, they, they, uh, they claim they didn't know what it was, but we, we know that they knew. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, what's yellow NDMA, right. Um, and they knew about it back, back in the eighties before it ever came on the market, but they, it was a blockbuster drug. It was the first drug to ever reach a billion dollars in sales. I mean, it put GSK as we know it on the map and you know, they weren't going to give up that cash cow no matter what. So sure. they just kept selling it and took us 30, 40 years to figure it out. Yeah, it's, it's not going to sell in a fridge, right? It's going to sell front shelf kind of where people right. can grab it. Absolutely. And so, you know, the Zantac docket has really evolved, you know, past two years from when it kind of got kicked off. What are some of the current reported injuries now and kind of the injuries we can expect to see in the future? Sure. So, you know, it depends where you're litigating, right? So in the federal MDL, I think they, they've limited to 10 cancers. Um, I think they recently said that they're not pursuing two of them. So it's down to eight. Um, and then over in the California proceeding where, where I'm, I'm leading it with Jennifer Moore, uh, you know, we have a couple thousand cases there and, and we're going to trial in October of next year. So we're really excited. Uh, but there we've just recently selected our bellwether picks, yeah. meaning the 20 possible cases that are going to go to trial next, uh, in the next three to two to three years. The next, sorry, next year, two, three years. Um, uh, for between plaintiff's pick, defense pick, plaintiff's pick, defense pick. That's what the agreement is. Um, and the cancers that are at issue in that group of bellwethers are bladder cancer, uh, liver cancer, uh, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and I believe there's a kidney cancer in there as well. So those are the six that we're going to be working up in the immediate um, litigation period, like, you know, March of next year going through all the, the science, you know, the, the state version of Daubert, which is called Stargon in California. We're going to go through that process um, and we're going to go to trial first, you know, in October of next year. Uh, the likelihood that the first trial is going to be either bladder cancer or liver cancer, since those are the two that we selected to yeah. pursue first and um, we get to go first. So are you finding that a lot of attorneys are coming to you with their clients since you're now in the California rather than the NDL asking for you to... Um, I can't tell you how many people call yep. me saying, hey, how do I get my case to California? And if anybody's interested in that, we have a, a process. There's some things you've got to check to make sure not everybody can be found in California, but a lot of people can. I'd say about 15 to 20% of everyone's docket can be filed in state court. And I think if you talk to anybody, uh, if you can file it in California state court, you should. <laughs> it's a great venue. We have a great judge. We're based in Oakland and Alameda County. Um, in the same department where I actually obtained uh, a $2 billion verdict in Roundup. So it's <laughs> nice. a good venue. We love the area. We love the jury. It's a great place to put, put your cases if you're interested. And if you are, reach out to myself or Jennifer Moore, and we'll, we'll put you in the right place and the right people to get coordinated. Answering my questions before I say them. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, Brent, in your opinion, I mean, who's going to ultimately be held liable for these 
you know, Zantac cases? Is it the retailers? Is it the manufacturers? It's still you know, too soon to tell. What does it look like now? You know, I, I think the primary liability is going to rest with the brand name manufacturers. And we're talking about GSK, Pfizer, Bullringer, Ingelheim, and Sanofi. Mm -hmm. okay. Sanofi is probably lesser than the other three because Sanofi only got ownership of the product in the last two years before it got taken off market. But I'd say those are going to be the primary people who are responsible. But I do believe that the generics, the retailers, um, the distributors, they all have a piece of the liability as well. And I think that we've had some really interesting discovery in the last six months showing that they knew about this problem and were negligent in the way they did things. And I think that when this all, when the dust settles, whatever settlement we reach will primarily involve the brands, but I think the distributors and the retailers will also be involved to some extent, but in a more limited context. Yeah, that's great. Brenna had a question regarding the officially filed complaints that that are being claimed. What are what are you seeing? Well, you know, it's uh, the, the the claims are, are, are that we're pursuing are, are sort of traditional products liability claims. Um, obviously, we're pursuing different theories of negligence. You know, from the from the manufacturer perspective, failure to warn, mm -hmm. failure, failure to test, failure to advise on how to transport. And obviously from the distributors and the retailers, you know, improper or negligent transportation and storage and the handling of the product itself, which led to NDMA. Um, I'll say this though, the most compelling part about this case, and this is really any case involving cancer, but you know, cancer is a big deal and people are really hurt. And, you know, we have these clients who really have no business being subjected to a carcinogen and frankly wouldn't have touched ranitidine they, there's a million other options on the market they wouldn't touch it if they know and it could increase the risk of any cancer let alone the cancer they got and so you know it's, it's a really compelling story and um i think the defendants are going to be in a bit of a bind when we get to trial because really there's no reason for this product ndma which is literally a derivative of rocket fuel it's literally a product that has no purpose in our society except to cause cancer in laboratory experiments on animals it has no business being here and if they knew about it suspected should have known about it they're going to be held liable and i think the juries are going to see that right what would you say you know the the leadership team how are they supporting you know the the multitude of clients well you know in the mdl they've done a, a very great job of of institutionalizing everything okay from you know what you have to file when you have to file what piece of paper you need to do this and they have a, a, a pre-trial order for i think everything that i can think of and then some judge Rose is very hands-on she's a micromanager um some people like that some people don't but it is what it is um in the california proceeding it's a little bit california state court it's a little bit the judge is a different has a different approach he, he you got something in front of him needs to resolve he was, does otherwise he's assuming you're litigating and working the case up but in the california proceeding you know the leadership jennifer i and our pec which is a good tight group of attorneys we're working up the case we have our own experts we have our own protocols we have our own we're taking our own liability depots we're doing all of that work the mdl is doing it as well and we're, we're coordinating very carefully where we can where our interests align sometimes they don't but most of the time they do yeah. uh on, on depositions and getting everything worked up and i'll tell you there's been well over 60 depositions in this case 
there has been uh, millions and millions and millions of documents produced and we were vetting them and getting them prepared and using them in depots. Um, and the case is coming together pretty nicely. I think that there's a really strong liability case and a really strong causation case. Um, and I think the leaderships in both of the litigations are doing a real bang of job uh, pressing forward all those aspects. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and something that, you know, it's kind of to everyone, hopefully, that watches this, really the whole litigation for Zantac has really occurred during COVID, like during these kind of like different times. And so, you know, how has the landscape for mass tort changed because of COVID? Well, it's funny. I think COVID had two effects, right? Uh, for the defendants that didn't want to litigate for years, they all settled, right? And so we've had a bunch of settlements happen. And then for those defendants that want protracted litigation, they've, they've leveraged COVID to push out trial dates to make things more difficult. And it's something that we're fighting every day, um, trying to get trial dates to stick. You know, how are we going to do a trial with 12 jurors? Or can we get them down to eight? How are we going to do it live? Can we do them by Zoom? It's made it more difficult to proceed in the way we traditionally done. But at the same time, I think it's made it easier. I think Judge Rosenberg, for example, and, and the same thing with our judge in, J, in the JCP, Judge Grillo, you know, we do all of our hearings basically by Zoom. Um, so a lot more people are able to participate and actively engage in the process. Because of COVID, we, we, we do a lot more webinars and a lot more sort of Zoom meetings, probably too many sometimes. But, you know, the idea is to, in some ways, the, the, the fact of COVID has forced us to more collaborate more, at least online, in a way that I don't think we historically did. And I think, for example, in the MDL, there's a lot of great communication coming from the leadership about what's happening and how things are moving. And they have webinars where they you can ask questions and, hey, how do we do this? And what's going on? And what's the strategy for this appeal or whatever? Um, and in the, the JCP, it's a little smaller. We don't have as many firms, but, you know, we have a very good tight-knit group and we're doing the same thing. So I think um, I think it's an interesting exercise, um, but I'll tell you this, and I think everyone will agree, I'm really sick of this disease. It needs to go away and we need to get back to trying cases. Yes. I, I need to be in a courtroom. I need to be with a jury. I need to be with a judge. And you put me in there long enough with people, I'll get them to agree with me. That's the whole plan. And, so much more difficult to do that on a, on a Zoom platform, you know? Yeah, it's hard to get the other person to feel your emotions, right? And, and everything that you're saying, and then, you know, the emotion of the client itself, no. Um, so totally. Hard, like, see people, you know, like, sure. like right now I'm looking at the camera so you can, so I don't look like I'm looking off into the distance, right? <laughs> I can't really see your faces when I'm talking to you. And, you know, in front of a jury, 95% yeah. of communication is done without noise. It's done right. based body reactions and i learned so much at trial from when one when one one you know juror crosses his arms or rolls his eyes i notice it and i go well hold on doctor that doesn't make any sense and i challenge it and make the guy go oh, okay cool you know mm -hmm. there's that, there's that feedback that's so important for duplication understanding i used to teach classes back uh before uh before i you know finished uh, lsat classes and being able to seek confusion or understanding on someone's face is so important to making sure they understand it. And that also applies to a judge. You know, that's a part of education and teaching and learning. And if you can't do that, it just hamstrings everybody and it becomes yeah. a, a talking head in the box. <laughs> so true, though. Perfect. Well, thank you, Brent. Well, um, I know we're all interested in Zantac, but I, we have like several other questions that we'd like to ask you um, kind of about mass tort and, and, and other things. So, Susan, you want to go for it? Yeah. So you were present in the early stages of the of the Monsanto cases. You know, when that um, 
that first potential claimant, Jack McCall, was being considered, what information contributed to the firm's decision to take on that case? A lot of things. One, I just have a predisposition for disliking Monsanto. My father was, uh, he marched with Cesar Chavez and worked with farm workers to get them not exposed to pesticides. So I always wanted to go after Monsanto. This is a family tradition in my family. But but realistically, it was, you know, looking at the science. Every mass tort, any litigation you want to put a substantial amount of resources and time into, it's all on the science, right? Because if the science isn't there, it's not worth your time. It doesn't matter how good of a lawyer you are, how much you can, you know, sure. put lipstick on a pig. If it's a pig, it's a pig. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to look at the science, look at what's underlying it. And for example, in Roundup, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, the most premier cancer agency in the world, had looked at glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, and said, this is a probable human carcinogen. A hundred page report telling you every study and everything. And I read that and I went, I'm convinced the science is there, right? These guys are really smart. And of course, we then hired experts who confirmed it. And, you know, despite the fact in Roundup that every regulator in the world says it doesn't cause cancer, despite the fact that there's studies that show that it doesn't cause cancer, we had the materials to show that those things were wrong and we could explain why they were wrong. And I think that was all based on science. A lot of people who saw the trial were there had a three-hour opening statement, right? And everyone's like, what? What are you doing there? And I was going through study by study, explaining it, how to understand it, how to read it, how to think what they're going to say, why that's not right. Here's the proper way to look at it. And, you know, in the end of the day, it obviously worked. So, so maybe more Zantac questions. Sorry, but do you think you'll kind of use that tactic for Zantac mm -hmm. that you used? I think any time you don't embrace the science, you really run the risk of losing. And I think this, there's this idea among some trial lawyers, not the good ones, but the bad ones, that juries are not smart, that they won't get it. They'll fall asleep. Their eyes will glaze over. And sure, some juror will, someone. But at the end of the day, collectively, they are very smart. And they want to know the scientific basis. And if you're getting verdicts based upon hyperbole and, you know, drama, that's not a sustainable approach. Where you get verdicts big verdicts is when you show them the facts and the jury goes, you know what? I see what you're saying and I agree. And there's nothing that anybody can say, argue, or do otherwise disabuse them of that. And as soon as you get them on your side, then you can really change the world. You can really make a huge impact in the, you know, the hallowed halls of justice. So I think that it's, you know, really important. I think that's exactly what we're going to do in Zantac. I mean, that's going to be the focus of our case. It's going to be about the science and the fact that they didn't do their job as scientists. We're going to, we're going to nail them for it. Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of, one thing I was going to ask you, Brent, a lot of the attorneys that are, that are looking at our streams, um, our personal injury attorneys looking to get into mass tort, sure. right? And so they're wondering, well, um, what are, what are some of the things that you share or advice for any personal injury attorney looking to get into mass tort? Sure. I mean, listen, I, 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 my firm will often go and get cases on cases that we're not working up, right? What we do is we send those cases to the firms that we trust and mm -hmm. know are competent and able and will take care of the case. So I think people who try to get cases and just sit on them are running a real risk because sure. Nowadays, the defendants don't do global settlements like they used to. They do inventory settlements. So you want to make sure you're in the right inventory. Um, but if you're looking to get into it, I think the, the first thing you need to do 
is talk to someone who's doing it and say, hey, would you mind giving me 10 minutes? Like, I get people who want Zantac or any of my other litigations that I'm working on. And I always have time to sit down and kind of talk through the case, explain it, show them some material, send them some studies if they really want to dig deep. But you should do that because it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. But I'll tell you, the rewards are pretty considerable, right? Mass Torch is the unique synthesis of being able to really help people, like a lot of people, and, and, and make a good return, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it's really... It's, it's really a stopgap to our regulatory failures, right? The, the regulators failed for 30 years with Zantac, 40 years with Zantac, and now we're fixing that with litigation. And so it's a really cool area, but it can be very tricky, and you want to make sure you, you, you do it right by giving the cases to the right people. Or if you're going to do it yourself, getting your rolling your sleeves and digging in and being able to commit thousands of hours and potentially millions of dollars to litigating. If you're not going to do that, send it to the firms that are doing that and make sure they're the good ones. And... I, I'm not going to tell you who's good or bad. That That's something you're going to figure out. They're all my friends. So, But you can figure out pretty quickly who's really on top of it and who's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a lot of the same feedback we provide um, attorneys that are looking to get into the space. Um, mm -hmm. It takes a lot of people and a lot of infrastructure to be able to work up these types of cases and to provide the level of insight and keeping these you know, clients engaged throughout the entire litigation. Mm -hmm. um, Allison, I know that we were talking a little bit. We had we had uh, watched one of your YouTube videos, and we were interested to learn a little bit about. Um, you, you mentioned something on one of the YouTubes. I know Allison, you were going to follow up uh, with Brent and ask a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I thought it was really interesting. Um, it was a long video. Uh, I watched parts of it for sure. But you know, in the beginning, you talk about how there's going to be tons of questions that the you know the juror is going to have to ask themselves. But there's really three core questions that kind of um, umbrella into it. And you know, it's not does Zantac, Roundup, whatever. It's not, does that cause cancer, right? It's, could it have caused cancer? And would this client be here today if they wouldn't have had it? Not saying they weren't going to get it 10 years down the road and in the future, but would they be in this room today if they haven't have used that medication, right? That, that drug, anything like that. Um, I thought that was a really interesting spin on that. And I, I think that makes the argument so much stronger. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, your mindset getting to that being one of the driving arguments. Sure. I mean, th this is, again, driven by the science of cancer, right? All cancers are more prevalent the, old, the older you get, right? Your cells have more time to mutate and then turn into the, you have to get a certain sequence of mutations that turn into cancer. It's like a, it's like a game of, of Russian roulette, except that as you get older, you're putting more bullets in the chamber. And, you know, if you're 150 years old, you're going to get cancer, right? Yep. That said, right, you know, and that's what the defendants always say. Oh, it's act of God. It's just random it's just you know, genetics or whatever but no right the litigation is not about whether or not you would have gotten cancer it's how many bullets were in that chamber right and if the defendants have made a carcinogen that's loading up the gun such that you know it increases the chances of you getting a bullet or cancer in that context then they're liable right it's the same concept because everyone has to understand it's all about probabilistic determinism, right? It's all about what happens based upon the likelihood of increasing your chances. And once you understand that, all the defendant's arguments like, well, it only increased the risk of increasing the risk of getting five cancers out of 100,000. You're like, sure, sure. Oh, that's still five times more, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, and then, of course, you bring in the individual characteristics of what the person went through and their history and all that kind of stuff. You can you can you can sort of describe the size of the number of bullets and the number of chambers and suddenly they're the person you shouldn't be taking it. So um, 
I think it's really important to understand that, particularly from a litigation perspective and making sure the jury gets that. Because once they do, a lot of the defense arguments make no sense. You can tell they're just playing games. And that's, again, why I really think you need smart jurors, because they can see through a lot of that garbage uh, if you can set the stage right. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I appreciate exactly. that. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. I, I think I know the answer to this, and we, we all probably do. But what is your most fulfilling case to date? Ooh, that's a tough one, mostly because I'm worried that my, my clients will see this and get mad at me and say, why didn't you pick me, Brent? Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, it's, I think in some ways the most fulfilling case actually was not Roundup, surprisingly. Mm. Um, I think, although that was obviously fulfilling career-wise and sure. you know, all the accolades and everything, but actually uh, the case I did against GSK involving the drug Paxil represented a, a widow whose uh, her husband was the senior partner at Reed Smith uh, doing all the mergers and acquisitions, you know, one of the firms we go against. And he took Paxil, and six days later, he went down to a subway, jumped in front of it, and uh, killed himself. Mm. And my firm had been doing Paxil suicide cases for years, but this is the first one I ever got. Yeah. Problem is, he didn't take any brand name drug. He took just the generic. And I had to go into court and tell the judge, it doesn't matter that he only took generic. I should be allowed to sue the brand name. And uh, there's about 150 decisions on it. And there's three decisions that say you can. One of those is mine. It was the first case I ever argued. I convinced the judge to go for it. We then went to trial. We got a $3 million verdict, which you know is big in the in, in my world, but at the in retrospect, probably not that big. Um, and we changed the law in Illinois on that point. So I think, you know, I, I in some ways that was very I was very proud of that because I was told at the very beginning. You cannot win this. In fact, that was how they Brett, you're going to lose. That was how it was given to me. And I said, okay, well, let's see if I can change that. And that was probably most of the thing. And to this day, Wendy Dolan, the, the widow, I text with her. I chat with her whenever I'm in Chicago. I visit with her. She's a friend now, a true friend. And so in some ways, that was probably the most fulfilling. But, you know, it's really hard to pick one. Uh, sure. Johnson, he's, you know, I love him. The Pileads, I love them. Even Mr. Hardiman, I, I feel deeply passionate about some of the families that I got to know in the roundup litigation that we settled. Uh, you know, it's really hard because, you know, I kind of really truly love all of them, you know? Yeah. No, we, we feel the same way. You get to know these people, like you said, they become friends and, and you get to work alongside of them and their success is really your success. And so I, I certainly can appreciate that. Um, you know, I know that, um, we, we all would have thought you would have said the, the roundup case, but we knew, I, I figured it might be something a little bit different. But And so that's interesting to hear that story. But I'm sure a lot of success came out of the roundup case. And I know, Allison, you were going to ask Brent a little bit about, there's a lot of success you've had, but surely there's you, you've had some failure. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I know we're kind of running out of time a little bit, but that's exactly right. I mean, of course, we're here because of your success today, right? But with success comes failure. Um, and so maybe if you wouldn't mind talking about maybe, you know, one of your most impactful or biggest professional failures and, and how it contributed to, to us talking today to your trial with Monsanto. Sure. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. We don't have time for it, so you might have to cut this out. But I'm just saying <laughs> you guys can decide if you want to use it or not. You know, you know back in the day, there's this great TED talk where the scientist researcher went out and studied what is the defining characteristic of successful people and looked at very successful teachers, people in their different fields, not just monetarily, but in, in their fields in life. And she studied them all and she found out some really interesting things. One, it's, it's not intelligence. In fact, intelligence is sometimes inversely related to success. It's not 
you know, where you come from and do you have money or anything? No, it's not that. It's literally just your ability. She called it grit. It's the ability to pick yourself up after you've lost and just keep going despite every reason you have in your heart and soul to give up. The first case I ever tried, the very first case I ever tried, I was lead trial counsel. It was a pharmaceutical case in Virginia and I lost. I went in, I, I remember I did my closing argument and Mike Miller, who is one of the attorneys that I ended up working with on Roundup, uh, who just passed away very tragically. Mm -hmm. we, we miss him dearly. Mm -hmm. um, he went and saw my, my closing argument. He came out and he said, Brent, that was the best closing argument I've ever seen in my life. And you're going to lose. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you're going to lose. And I, I didn't, I was in, I was in Virginia. I didn't, really know much about jury selection. It was sort of not in my sort of realm of knowledge. Yeah. Two hours later, defense verdict, I lost. And I was crushed, absolutely crushed. Um, took me a week to pull myself off of the floor. Uh, desperate sadness that I had. I really was this close to quitting the practice of law. I said I wasn't cut out for this. I thought I was going to win. I really believed in it. Um, flash forward to Roundup, you know, Mike Miller is involved in a catastrophic injury uh, accident he, his kite starts into a pier lungs, lungs collapse and he needs someone to try the case that's starting in two weeks and who does he call calls that that wise ass wisner out in california who did that great case in virginia and should have won and he put the trust in me to try the case and that was the first monsanto verdict that's why i got a chance to do it at such a young age and so because i kept pushing because i kept doing it mm -hmm. not, i was saying the fact that i lost and i lost bad Okay, you know, it led to greater success because I picked myself up and kept pushing forward. And I think that's just a great example of how important it is to have grit. Sorry, it's a long answer, but no, well, I love that. No, that's perfect. And, and really, it's not just your success, though. It, it's, it's all those families and all the individuals you've helped along the way that oh you wouldn't God. have been able to if you didn't have the grit to continue. Absolutely. And I, I just want to be clear, Rhonda wasn't just me. There's a lot of other lawyers involved. <laughs> really good lawyers about it was not just <laughs> me I couldn't have done that myself but I think it was the 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 the, the working hard you know in the face of Judge Chabria or Chabria I never know how to say his name who in Roundup who was pretty hostile to the case at times pushing through all that I think it was really powerful and it's again grit yeah I love that thank you for yeah I know I love that too it's a great story <laughs> and great it's a great reminder to all of us because we're all going to have professional failures and so I'll, that will stick with me about having grit. Um, Brent, I am so honored that you took time to connect with Allison today, share a little bit more about yourself, um, impart some wisdom on us. And I know that there will be a lot of attorneys that are watching this. Let me ask you, for those that maybe don't know, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, best way to reach me is send me an email, uh, rbwisner at bombheadland.com. Um, you know, I, I mostly respond to emails. But I have an assistant who bothers me to, re hey, respond to that person. I That's right. Them. If I don't respond, just send me another email. Hey, you didn't respond. No, I'm sorry. I'll get back to it. So, <laughs> but send me an email. It's a great way to get a hold of me if you want to talk about anything. And I usually make time for almost everybody as long as you're not a defense lawyer. Or I don't, I don't <laughs> like investors. Don't, don't call me if you're from a hedge fund. I don't want to talk to you guys. I want to talk to lawyers. But I'll talk right. to you. 
Got it. So open invitation to attorneys. Got it. Unless you can't tell me something and then I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> right. Well, good. Well, man, we really appreciate you. We appreciate everything you've done and, and for your time today. So thank you so much, Brent. Um, this has been fantastic. And hopefully I'm sure there'll be people reaching out to you. Um, have a great rest of your day and we appreciate your time. 